Mr. Mark's Madness. You're doing it again. We're going to have to come up with a better intro one of these days. This is I, gonna, it doesn't get, have to be good. That's part of the charm. I, I, oh, really? That's yeah. part of the charm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The fact that we suck is part of the charm. Okay, That's... good. Then we've got a wow. Our charm. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Thank you. Um, also, if this is, it's not your first episode because you've all been listening, but yeah. for those of you that just showed up, apparently, um, hi, I'm going to good assume. chapter to do it. I'm going, it's a good chapter to do it. Well, you're, you're already here. We're just now recognizing your existence. Sure. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and go out on a limb and assume it's because uh, the uh, uh, Brett from Rev Left uh, guest spot at ProlesCon episode went live and you heard our name for the first time and you're like, what's this nonsense? So welcome, <laughs> welcome, and thank you. That's thank- the best way to ask about us. What uh, is this nonsense? Well, I, can you blame them, though? Can you blame them? <laughs> Um, if you're listening here, uh, which is weird because everyone is listening here, uh, uh, I will say Capital, uh, give us a couple episodes to find our stride on that. It did take us yeah. a couple to really, really get going. Yeah, we didn't know we were for sure doing a podcast. Yeah, we had no we idea what we were doing when we started this. Um, at but, least uh, at least the end's real good because we fucked it up and if, it twice, so we had practice. If all you do on Capital is go like... 23 to on or like 25 on you're probably pretty well set up because I do think 26 to 32 and 33 are like two of our best episodes oh yeah um, but we did we did some good riffs on Elon Musk early we oh did we did all sorts oh there's all sorts lobby. of good classics oh. but there's there's a lot of waiting there's a lot there's of there's a lot too. of and it's a dense book but if you want an accessible dense. version of that book the uh, w- the audio book is 48 hours and I did the math today our version of it's 22 so we cut an entire day off of you having to listen to Cap there you're you go. You're welcome. There you you're go. You're welcome. And, and also, I hope you do the whole thing and read along, but yes. if you just listen to our podcast for just one episode, 26 but to 32 is a good summation. It there. is a good one. And you don't have to, you know, yeah, you don't have to do it, and Capital's intimidating. Yeah. We yeah. know that. But hey, yeah. we're not here to talk about, uh, we're not here to talk about Capital. No, we're here, we're to, talk here about, to talk about State and Rev. We're here to talk about the St. Louis goddamn blues. Well, That's okay, what we're yeah. here to talk about, yeah, because yeah. by the time you've listened to this, either me and David are going to be the happiest people on the face of the damn planet, or we're going to be very sad. So this is like Schrodinger podcast because no I, one knows I don't know I mean obviously if we win tomorrow we're so happy it doesn't matter yeah blindly but, happy but I'm going to jail oh yeah it, I mean I was uh, uh, the fact that sa- the I'm almost thing is if we lose I'm probably going to jail because I'm gonna burn down the post dispatch for that Dewey defeats Truman bullshit yeah yeah, yeah 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 that'll but, happen that'll yeah, happen that'll yeah. happen uh, that said if we lose I don't know if I'll be sad or tomorrow or if I was on Sunday yeah, yeah, so I was God. I was in it. that mountain of nonsense Sunday. Uh, uh, there were people climbing trees. It was a fun time, but uh, <laughs> if we'd have won, I'd have died. I'd have been dead. I wouldn't be here to do this. Um, also, as is our want at the beginning of an episode, when we have uh, when we have erred, or more importantly, when we just say something that is uh, empirically not true. Yeah. Uh, I there was a tweet that referenced something that we mentioned in the last episode. Or, and this would be my last episode, I think, chapter four. Yeah. Um, thankfully, by some coincidence, I noticed the tweet at around the same time we posted the episode and then pulled the episode and removed the content uh, that we had proven to be erroneous. But just in case anyone did listen to that, and even if you didn't, um, I think it's a good example of well-meaning going wrong. So, uh, again, the statistic we cited... 
Um, and David is furiously clicking on his phone, so I'm assuming he's going back to try and locate it at this point. Um, otherwise, he's just playing Candy Crush, and I, I don't know. <laughs> no, seems, no, no, like no, 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 no. I was trying to remember something about okay. Rain, but about, never mind. Uh, but the, the more – so we got the, the, the call out was essentially we made reference to – um, during a talking about how this you know technology improves the standard of living, yada yada, all that bullshit. Uh, that the high mortality rate, the the low uh, life expectancy for the trans community, and specifically, we cited a a a statistic that had been ballied around a lot. That I think we just took at face value as accurate. That something like third, like the the average 35. age for. Yeah, yeah, we're usually pretty careful about what we, we cite, but sometimes it's not like every single off-the-cuff comment we've ever said we, like, Cultural researched. osmosis sometimes gets the better of us. And yeah, that, yeah, because, I mean, we are talking off-the-cuff. We don't yeah, script this Yeah, this is not—there is no script for—this is very much we're reading the book and talking, so the stuff like that, yeah, we get a little—we can get a little in it sometimes. But that uh, that comment—that that statistic, apparently, one, is inaccurate, and, and in and of itself, if it's inaccurate, it needs to be removed. But also—and I had never considered that— option of it, it it's it's almost a self-defeating statistic for that community to say if it's wrong and we keep perpetrating it then there's some belief that well then i'm going to die by this age or that's the average that's and if that that that, that just seems insidious yeah. to have put out there if it's incorrect so obviously that was not our intent at all yeah and i mean and this is something where you don't you don't live it so you don't quite understand it and yeah. you know i'm someone who's you know i used to to forward say like police brutality videos not realizing the harm they cause for victims thinking i was i was making people more aware of stuff and i uh um you know, I don't know. I I didn't know that that was something that was causing more harm than good. Uh, so I've stopped doing that. I've spoken about that in past episodes. Yeah. Apparently, this statistic uh, is one, regardless of right or wrong, and it seemingly is is wrong and 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 drawn out of the sky to to show that. I mean, poorer communities, more marginalized communities do have lower life expectancies. Uh, apparently, this this evidence isn't as empirical as we thought, and regardless. Uh, hearing it causes a lot of trauma for trans people and can lead to a lot of self-harm. So we retract that as best we can. We've pulled it out of the episode if you didn't download it before we pulled it out. Uh, But also if there's an earlier episode where maybe we said it and we don't remember or for any future use, we would recommend against citing that particularly. Um, You know, the notion in general that more marginalized groups uh, deal with more, you know, I mean, have more suffering, lo- lower lifespans. You don't need a stark statistic that causes more harm than good to yep. get that across. And uh, so that's something we've learned and we want to correct. Yes. Okay. Uh, so that has been this week's episode of Corrections. Um, again, shout out to shout out to Rain uh, on Twitter. I think I think uh, I'm not gonna put I'm not gonna put her Twitter handle out here right now if she doesn't want us to. Um, uh, but but Rain, if 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 you if you want to if you want an official shout out again on the show, you know, just send us which Twitter handle you want us to plug and we'll plug it because it's good content, people. It's good wholesome content. Um, and it's 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 just it's just a solid follow. So thank you, everybody. Uh, this has been Corrections. Now on to the far less depressing, more. Never mind. Holy fuck. It's, I, I forgot what we're doing. We're reading imperialism. On to the more <laughs> depressing stuff. Tally-ho, guys. Chapter six, the division of the world among the great powers. And okay, stop. Nope, we got to stop again. Okay. Sorry, I forgot. Uh, uh, and again, we're going to be doing three episodes tonight, so I've got to make sure to scatter all of my uh, errata in. Um, but this week, uh, this week, there's going to be a couple different new segments on the show. Uh, the first new segment 
is things things my dad said that pissed me off. Oh, um, okay. And and out of respect, I I've I have tried to get the man to listen to the podcast. I don't think it's gonna happen. I hope it does. Um, I sincerely hope it does because he's 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 not he's, he's a smart guy. I don't know why this is so hard. Um, I think years of 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 being in that environment kind of broke him a little bit in, into trying to believe in in the good word. But I got sent a I got sent something that my father found on Pinterest. Now that is immediately a bad start to anything. Nothing your father sends you on Pinterest is ever ever going to be a good positive thing. But the thing I got sent was an image and at first, because again, we've had extensive conversations uh, about you know, the, the communism and Marxist Leninism in general and, sure. and trying to clear up misconceptions and stuff, you know, things that held me back for a long time. So he sent me thing, and the first thing I saw, it was 7 o'clock in the morning when he sent this to me. Um, I'm blurry eyed and I just see the, the, the hammer and the sickle and I'm like, yes! Ah, positive! Yes, good. And then there's a quote and the quote on this is, there are only two places where socialism will work, in heaven where it is not needed, and in hell where they already have it. Um, and that's one of those fun boomery kind of things where it's like it sounds pithy and it sounds good. And it doesn't have any content it whatsoever. It has no content whatsoever. So in and of itself, it has no content. That's bad. And you could, it's it's just a, a copy pasta. You, it you is. You just shove capitalism or feudalism mm-hmm. or whatever the hell you mm-hmm. want in there. You could, you could. Now that would be bad enough on its face. Yeah. The problem is, do you know who that quote was attested to, at least in this fun Pinterest image? Oh, fuck. It's probably some Margaret Thatcher bullshit. Oh, no. It's the OG Margaret Thatcher, baby. It's old Winston. Oh, God. Winston goddamn Churchill. Winston, Gandhi should die because the world will be better, Churchill. And yes, Gandhi has some problems in and of himself. Gandhi was a racist liberal shit. We all have some issues, but for fuck's sake, he's better than All the things you accuse Stalin of. Oh, Holodomor. They fucking. The Guardian. The Guardian. My only response to this was a link to the fucking Guardian, the same place that that cited the, and and also this is, since we've recorded, the the fun Kim Jong-un had the lead uh, negotiator murdered plot that lasted all of 72 hours. Oh, there's already another one out. Oh, they escalated to piranhas. Which is not how piranhas work. You can go fucking swimming in piranhas. More importantly, (laughs) holy shit, that's the double down of the century. Like, you got called out and you double down on per- like I expect sharks with laser beams to be their next call. That's the only thing they have. But I had this. Sh- I, I just sent back a link to the Guardian article that showed Winston Churchill intentionally starving four million people in fucking India. And like what? Really? Even if that quote had any content, this is the person you're citing. Go drop. God damn it. So that was the frustration. I'll save the I'll save the next segment for next episode cuz it's a fun one too. Okay. Moving on. You're just dropping fucking bombs in my lap here. What a I, I know. I, I I like to start them out early. I like to start them out hot. Yeah, Gotta yeah. warm them up swift, for the co- sweet Lenin content. All right, all right. Let's get this the, the sweet Lenin content. So the division of the world among the great powers. Oh, this is gonna be. This is gonna make me mad. Isn't and it? Lenin starts citing a book by Supan, the territorial development of the European colonies. Now I was unaware that uh, famed cardinals third, third pitcher Jeff Supan. Was who's writing, also Aaron Miles and who's also Nick Stavanoa. They're all the same also, person. Was also writing back in the uh, the eighteen hundred. <laughs> I mean, he's a vampire, and that explains his his well controlled pitching mechanics. Sure, sure, yeah, absolutely. That's, 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 that's solid. That's, yep. 
Uh, so anyway, he's a geographer, a Supan with one P. Briefly Two subs up this. People are gonna get that fucking reference. <laughs> that would have really messed him. Yeah. <laughs> Briefly <laughs> subs up this development at the end of the 19th century as follows, and he shows these percentages of territories. I'm not gonna read out the chart because that's why you're here. That's why you're here. But needless to say, I, I, I'm gonna point out. Everything raises up, okay? There's a 42% increase in territories in Polynesia, 5% increase in Asia. There's not left much You're left reading the chart! But the important thing, I will read off it. In 1876, technically colonized, per this geographer, 10.8% of Africa. Now, that's through chattel slavery and everything. Yeah. And it still was only 10.8%. By 1900, 90% of Africa colonized. They had a solid, like... 20 to 20 years. Fucking, and that's what happens when France and Germany start getting into to colonizing. Also, what is the point of having Australia as 100% in both? That doesn't seem useful. That's, <laughs> that seems completely unuseful, Supan. What are you doing here? <laughs> so anyway, uh, Supan says, the characteristic feature of this period is therefore the division of Africa and Polynesia. And so Lenin continues, as there's no unoccupied territories, that is territories that do not belong to any state in Asia or America, Mr. Supan's conclusions must be carried further. We must say that the characteristic feature of this period is the final partition of the globe. Not in the sense that a new partition is impossible. On the contrary, new partitions are possible and inevitable. But in the sense that the colonial policy of the capitalist countries has completed the seizure of the unoccupied territories on our planet. For the first time, the world is completely shared out. That is the future only redivision is possible. Territories can only pass from one owner to another instead of passing as unowned territory to an owner. Okay, that is technically accurate. That also... I need you to explain to me why that's not the bad, why that is statement is different than the unspoiled nature comment. Because that makes it sound like those people weren't people before people showed up. Oh, like people no, no, no. lived there. No, no, no. I mean, it's it's it wasn't colonized. None of the world had been colonized by settlers. Okay. And so, so this is, yeah, I mean, obviously people live there. There's not this unspoiled age, not this white supremacy. I'm not going to say Lenin's perfect, but he's not no, blatant white supremacist and, and he wasn't meaning to be here. That didn't feel, because again, we, we, will call, we will call him to the table. Marx was, made some bad calls. Engels made some bad calls. Sure, sure, if, if, if I was just, I couldn't, I couldn't get a feel for whether this was a bad call or not. No, and no. And I don't think it is, but I just, no, this I, was, felt like I mean, it. Lenin very specifically talked about colonialism, turns into capitalism, and now capitalism is reaching its peak with monopoly capitalism, has to, to lash out, and all of a sudden the colonialism's all all eaten up. Yeah. And so there's no more colonialism. There's no more settler colonialism territory to take. Now, yeah. you can retake it. You can fight with each other. And again, he's explaining World War One. Oh, for sure. You know, I mean, when we see things that aren't World War One these days, that's because some of it was won back by decolonial wars under socialists. Uh, some of it was... Excuse me. Some of it is just the fact that U.S. hegemony just bullies people right off stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, but the fact of the matter is Lenin was correct at the time. This is why we had world wars. Yeah. And this is why we would bring back, you know, the only reason we haven't had world wars was U.S. hegemony. And and for a long time, that's what the Cold War was. I mean, it settled down these these world wars, but there was still two conflicting powers. But one was decolonizing. Yeah. And now, you know, I mean, as the capitalist powers 
get combative, come back up. U.S. hegemony is, is pressed against. That's the problem they have with Russia. Uh, there could be another world war. And China, with don't don't leave China out. China's a China's a fun. Well, yeah, but China, China's not not colonizing. I, I mean, even Russia's not really colonizing, but it's at least it's 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 a capitalist country. You know, could, I mean, yeah, it's good yeah. to colonize. It has yeah, to. Yeah, so, you know, um, I, and that's that's a hard needle to thread sometimes because like. There's a bunch of NPR listeners who don't even know what the fuck Crimea is. They've just heard the word. And they think, like, Russia annexed it and ignore that the people there voted to go to Russia because they saw the territory falling to the fascist OUN. And what's left of, of the actual uh, Ukrainian leadership that was elected by the people is settling down in the Donbass. People just think, like, the Donbass is the bad word of the fought over part of Ukraine and, and Crimea is this magical land that Russia annexed. And they, they don't understand that. Uh but that said, it's not like Russia isn't capable of imperialism, you know. No, Russia is very capable of imperialism. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, we're going to continue with Lenin. Hence, we are passing through a peculiar period of world colonial policy, which is closely associated with the latest phase of capitalist development, with finance capital. For this reason, it is essential to deal in detail with the facts in order to ascertain exactly what distinguishes this period from those preceding it and what the present situation is. In the first place, two questions of fact arise here. Is an intensification of colonial policy, an intensification of the struggle for colonies observed in this period of finance capital? And how, in this respect, is the world divided at the present time? Seems like a pretty easy question to answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's going to turn to an American writer uh, named Morris, and his book is going to be The History of Colonization. Well, it seems like it'll sum it up nicely. Yeah, yeah. And he, uh, he makes an attempt to compile data uh, on Britain, France, and Germany in the 19th century. And we're going to jump down to Lenin's conclusions on these um, instead chart, of reading through the numbers. His charts are stupid. Uh, well, and, and they're, they're kind of the same thing, right? Like Britain had the most and they grew a little. Germany and France had a little less, but they – well, Germany just jumped in it right at the end and France kind of went from nothing to a little bit of something and, and everybody's kind of racing for colonies. Uh, so it says, for Great Britain, the period of enormous expansion of colonial conquest is that between 1860 and 1880. It was also very considerable in the last 20 years of the 19th century. For France and Germany, this period falls precisely in the last 20 years. We saw above that the apex of pre-monopoly capitalist development, of capitalism in which free competition was predominant, quote-unquote, obviously. I mean, he didn't put the air quotes. Yeah, I was about to say, he did not air quote that. But it was reached in the 60s and 70s of the last century. It means 1860s, 1870s, obviously. Uh, (laughs) Okay, okay, guys, if you needed that, explain. Painter, who was that for? (laughs) Who are you explaining? Sure we Who stay was on that track. correction He's for? Sure Time-traveling Lenin is the dream. It's not here yet. <laughs> okay. We now see that it's precisely following that period that the boom in colonial annexations begins and that the struggle of territorial division of the world becomes extraordinarily keen. It is beyond doubt, therefore, that the transition of capitalism to monopoly capitalism, of finance capitalism, is connected with the intensification of the struggle partition of the world. And Lenin's obviously, you know... Mm-hmm. And so we're going to jump down past all the square miles, blah, blah, blah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. To the quest for colonies by all the capitalist states at the end of the 19th century, and particularly in the, since the 1880s, is commonly known fact in the history of diplomacy and of foreign affairs. When free competition in Great Britain was at its height between 1840 and 1860, the leading British bourgeoisie politicians were opposed to colonial policy and were of the opinion that the liberation of the colonies and their complete separation from Great Britain was inevitable and desirable. 
M. Beer, in an article, Modern British Imperialism, published in 1898, shows that in 1852, Disraeli... <laughs> Shut up. Oh, no, no, it's, it's... I'm not saying... You pronounce, Benjamin Disraeli is a real person. Like, he's... Okay. Nobody did pronounce that horribly? No, you didn't pronounce... I mean, I think it's Disraeli is the, the oh, okay, accepted... Oh, it's, it's always something. But it's... Yeah, I don't know. What, what did he... He did something. Like, he is actually of his own famous... Um, Benjamin Disraeli, he's a conservative statesman, uh, ensured that Britain brought a consi- uh, controlling interest in the Suez Canal, uh, he did that. Why? What did he do? He did something important. Um, he invented Tory democracy. All right, fuck it. Maybe Benjamin Disraeli didn't do anything important. Fuck him. <laughs> fuck him. So, Disraeli, a statesman generally inclined towards imperialism, declared, The colonies are millstones round our necks. By the end of the 19th century, the heroes of the hour were Cecil Rose and Joseph Chamberlain, open advocates of imperialism, who applied the imperialist policy in the most cynical manner. It is not without interest to observe that even at the time that these leading British bourgeoisie politicians fully appreciated the connection between what might be called the purely economic and the political social roots of modern imperialism, Chamberlain advocated imperialism by calling it a true, wise, and economical policy. And he pointed particularly to the German, American, and Belgian competition, which Great Britain was encountering in the world market. Salvation lies in monopolies, said the capitalists as they formed cartels, syndicates, and trusts. Salvation lies in monopolies, echoed the political leaders of the bourgeoisie, hastening to the appropriate parts of the world not yet shared out. The journalist Stead relates the following remarks uttered by his close friend Cecil Rhodes in 1895 regarding his imperialist ideas. And we're going to go on the Cecil Rhodes quotes written by Stead. It was in the East Land of London yesterday and attended a meeting with the unemployed. I listened to wild speeches, which were just a cry for bread, bread, bread. And on my way home, I pondered over the scene and I became more than ever convinced of the importance of imperialism. My cherished idea is a solution for the social problem in order to save the 40 million inhabitants of the United Kingdom from a bloody civil war. We colonial statesmen must acquire new lands for settling the surplus population to provide new markets for the goods produced in factories and minds. The empire, as I've always said, is a bread and butter question. If you want to avoid civil war, you must become imperialist. That was Cecil Rhodes. Yeah. Now, now it is, it is, I feel like at the time it was also important to, so we, you, do, do you know who Cecil Rhodes is? Um, because I didn't before I read this one, and I, uh, I, I think, uh, okay. So Cecil Rhodes was a, uh, British, uh, Politician. He was British-born, uh, but he was uh, primarily known for his work in South Africa. Oh, he was a he was the the head of the uh, prime minister of the Cape Colony from 1890 to 1896, uh, and he was an ardent believer in British imperialism, which you know, also fine, whatever. Uh, he set up the Rhodes Scholarship, which is funded by his estate. So, all oh, Rhodes Scholars, I know what that is. Do you know how he made all his money? Diamond mines. Ha <laughs> ha. Circle gets the square. He cornered ninety percent of the diamond market. Yes, uh, that makes sense. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yes. South. I've, I've said before. What are the two two apartheid territories that you think of? Like Britain did the apartheid style settlement. Uh, Israel and, and, and South Africa. Africa. Yeah. Where are the diamond capitals of the world? Yeah. Johannesburg and Tel Aviv. It's it's why. It's, so it's it's again. 
everyone knows that the diamond mining industry is an entire is it a wildly exploitive, wildly oh, horrifying. You send people down a hole to get the sharpie gems. Yeah. As they tear their hands up, it, and then you tell them you'll take your nickel an hour here, have your bread, and get back down in the hole. And, and then artificial. And again, and then that, the wealthiest people just wear them around on jewelry just to show up. They're widely acknowledged that they're not rare. They're just artificially inflated commodities. Mm-hmm. But the millennials are killing them. So mm-hmm. so oh, cry cry for the beers. It's it's and it's like. Yeah, oh God. Uh, and it's like any any other type of jewelry, right? It starts with an actual function and an actual scarcity. It used to be believed gold was very scarce, silver was very scarce. And there were the new bronze and, and iron. There were mm-hmm. an extremely hard metal. And the beauty about gold especially is as the carrots get above like 14 or 16, something like that, it starts getting more malleable. So like yeah. 24 karat gold is like soft, very yeah. soft. But you mix it with other metals and like I think 14 karat is the hardest. So the purer it is, the easier it is to mold later. And of course, the more gold you have to mix. But then you can just mix it with other less rare metals and expand it and you have like 14 or 16 or 12 karat gold it's extremely hard silver is the same kind of way not to the extremity of gold and uh, diamonds were considered the rarest and you know how hard a diamond is Yeah. you know how hard it's, it's to, to mess up a diamond um, and then they just as, as it was realized they weren't scarce they were artificially inflated and just turned into a decoration just a pure decoration for the wealthy yeah and uh, so, so to wrap it up, uh, if you hadn't already kind of seen this, uh, the arc, I, I may have hinted at it towards the end there. Um, one, uh, his, one of his fun, fun, fun quotes. Again, this person, this this great, uh, you know, cornerstone of imperialism. Uh, his primary motivations in politics and business were his profound belief that the Anglo-Saxon race was, to quote his will, the first race in the world. Huh. So white supremacist, glorious. Uh, he is the uh, he is the founder of De Beers. He he invented De Beers, okay, so that right, so yeah. that was his company. That's that's the, the De Beers. So the, the De Beers guy and of was course absolutely as is... awful as you would imagine he could possibly be. And of course he's he's in government, just like we talked about. You yep. know where they they get themselves on boards of directors of other companies mm-hmm. into government. They they get their their way. We've talked about that in earlier chapters. Yeah. These monopolists. And again, this quote is him trying to position. Oh, but we need imperialism. It's it's for good. It's for it. Bullshit, motherfucker. You need it because it's what allows you to have complete control over the source of the thing that makes you completely wealthy. Well, and 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 of course that's that's his reason and right wingers and wealthy people, ruling class people love love to lie. But let's take this quote a little more seriously. There's a reason Lenin pulls it. They say it explicitly, right? I mean, the the capitalism, the taffy is getting pulled, and it's a little too obvious. Mm-hmm. And they're going to die. They're going to lose to a socialist revolution. And uh, so what do they do? They gold plate the chains. How do they gold plate the chains? Well, they need another lower working class. Mm. They can't just have the working class and the ruling class in the country. Now the whole country has to be rulers over another country. And this is a concept that is going to keep going for the next few chapters um, where we talk about, you know, why the opportunists uh, were suddenly nationalists in, in, in the war. Why Kautsky was talking about the, the German, you know, uh, Marx. 
yeah, the German marks and, and all that stuff and, and, and trying to say, you know, saving Germany's people and, and we need this this imperialism. And it's... If it's you thought Kautsky dunking was over, guys. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think it no. goes through at least chapter nine, if not all ten. Oh, it's, it, it's, yeah. it's in this book. Yeah, it's good. Uh, but there will be Kautsky dunking. Uh, but it's something, you know, I mean, he, he started doing this nationalist fervor and something we see from, you know, uh, social chauvinist right now, right? Yeah. I mean, we see the, the Bernie bros and the, oh, it's just it's Sweden's Sweden's the the real socialism and and Finland's the real socialism Denmark's the real socialism and these are, are white supremacist powers with moderate moderate social safety nets yeah. right and they they are wealthy their life's so good because they're imperialists that don't blatantly take it out on their own working class as much mm-hmm. so you're simply saying make sure we use the spoils of imperialism properly, not make sure we undo the system that's oppressing all of us and, you know, mi- mitigate the harm and then turn it over and pay reparations and fix things. You're saying, I like the imperialism. It's just not used correctly. You're just you're doing the imperialism wrong. And when you're doing that, how are you any different than the mainstream Democrats? I just. No, it's that. just it's window dressing. It's, it's 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 the Democrats versus the Republican. It's it's window dressing. It's nice working class talking points, but you have to make sure someone's suffering. You're really just out and out saying you're white supremacist. You don't care who dies. You just want to be a little more comfortable. You don't want to be. You're better than this. I need to be a rung above this on the yep. chain of command. That's all it's saying. And so that's that's an important thing for Lennon to highlight. And we'll go a little more into into that. Uh, it's called labor aristocracy, which I think comes from this book, but I did not see that. Term in this edit anywhere, but we'll talk more about labor aristocracy through chapters eight and nine as yeah, we keep going. For sure. Uh, and so Lennon's going to continue. This is what Cecil Rhodes, millionaire, king of finance, the man who was mainly responsible for the Boer War, said in 1895. His offense of imperialism is just crude and cynical, but in substance, it does not differ from the theory advocated by Malsav Sudakum. Uh, Potrasov, David, the founder of Russian Marxism, and others. The, f- the founder of Russian Marxism is absolutely his veiled kick at Kautsky. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, just Big making time. sure. We Big debated time. it. We debated whether it was Plakhanov last time, but it's, yeah, abso- yeah, it's I, absolutely Kautsky. I think we're in agreement it's Kautsky. Okay, I think we settled okay. on that. All right, I'm just making sure. Uh, Cecil Rhodes was somewhat more honest social chauvinist. To tabulate as exactly as possible territorial division of the world and the changes which have occurred during the last decades, we will take the data furnished by Supan and the work already quoted on the colonial possessions of all the powers of the world. Supan examines the years 1876 and 1900. We'll take the year 1876, a year aptly selected for it's precisely at the time that the pre-monopolist stage of development of West European capitalism can be said to have been completed in the main, and we will take the year 1914, and in the place of Supan's figures, we'll quote more recent stats from Hubner. Uh, oh, yeah, guys. Oh, oh, who's horny for stats? Woo! I'm not going to actually say the stats. I've just No, we're them. just going to give the whole prelude to the stats. Come no, on. But but uh, we're going to say afterward, too. We're going to okay. we're going to disseminate them. No one likes stats. Okay. But well, we're not going to read the table. We're just going to disseminate okay, them. Okay, good. Okay, Supan gives figures for colonies only. Uh, to add a brief figures in non-colonial and semi-colonial countries like China and Turkey, Persia is already mostly completely a colony. China and Turkey are working to become a colony. And so we get the following summary, and we're going to jump down to Lenin's summarization of that summary. 
We see that these figures below how complete was the partition of the world at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries. After 1876, colonial possessions increased to an enormous degree, more than one and a half times from 40 million to 65 million square kilometers in an area of the six biggest powers, an increase of 25 million square kilometers. That is one and a half times greater than the area of the home countries, which have a which have a total of 16.5 million square kilometers. In 1876, three powers had no colonies, and a fourth, France, had scarcely any. In 1914, these four powers had 14.1 million square kilometers of colonies, or an area one and a half times greater that of Europe, with a population of nearly 100 million. The unevenness of the rate of expansion of colonial possessions is very marked. If, for instance, we compare France, Germany, and Japan, which do not differ very much in area and population, we'll see that the first, France, has annexed almost three times as much colonial territory as the other two combined. Hold on. Hold on. I'm just, just geography time. Is Germany and Japan similarly? Um, Were they ever similarly, like, Population density? Like, it just feels like Germany is significantly larger than Japan and always has been. I don't know the square mileage of those countries. Because I feel like Japan is notoriously tiny. I, it looks like it on a map. Well, and it's yeah. in the middle, so it shouldn't be one of those things that's screwed over by a map. It, but I don't really know. Okay. Now, all right, guys. Welcome to Geography Corner. We're yeah, <laughs> you look up. I'll look up Japan square miles right. and look up France. All right. I'm looking up Germany because that's the one that's pissing me off. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, square miles. Okay. Germany square miles. Uh, Germany is 137,988 square miles. Okay. Japan, and why did I get a list? How is How are you? This, France is 248,573. I just keep, there's Japan. It's the same size as Germany. It's 145,894 square miles. Well, it's one nudge above bitch. Germany. How the fuck did they do that? All right, cool. Yeah, Germany is 60th, or 62nd, Japan is 61st. And France is a little higher than both of them, right? Yeah, France is 48th. France may... It's, it's yeah. got another 75,000. At the time, though, there was miles. probably it's... some other stuff going on. So we'll... yeah. All right, all right, Lennon. You know what? Ra- Don't I, I, ever assume yourself I, smarter than Lennon. I've, I never would pretend to. I just I got very... That's, sure. That now is an interesting fact, because if you ask me which is bigger, Japan or Germany, I would always say Germany. Mm-hmm. That is an interesting you fact. You would always be wrong. It is an interesting fact. <laughs> We'll see that the first, France, has annexed almost three times as much colonial territory as the other two combined. But in regard to finance capital also, France, at the beginning of the period we are considering, perhaps several times richer than Germany and Japan put together. In addition to, and on the basis of purely economic causes, geographical conditions and other factors also affect the dimensions of colonial possessions. However strong the process of leveling the world, of leveling economic and living conditions in different countries may have been in the past decades as a result of the pressure of large-scale industry, exchange, and finance capital. Great differences still remain, and even among the six powers, we see first, young capitalist powers, America, Germany, and Japan, which progressed very rapidly. Secondly, countries with an old capitalist development, France and Great Britain, which have made much slower progress than the previously mentioned countries. And thirdly, a country, Russia, which is economically most backward, in which modern capitalist imperialism is enmeshed, so to speak, with a thick web of pre-capitalist relations. Russia is always... Umbling down a couple years later. Russia is always just the weird case. Like, they're always just... 
They just stick they are out. unto themselves. They are they yep. are they are comparable to no one. Yep. Alongside the colonial possessions of these great powers, we've placed small colonies of the small states, which are, so to speak, the next possible and probable objects of new colonial share out. Most of these little states are able to retain their colonies only because of the conflicting interests and frictions among the big powers, which prevent them from coming to an agreement in regard to the vision of spoils. The semi-colonial states provide an example of the transitional forms which are to be found in all spheres of nature and society. Finance capital is such a great, it may be said, such a decisive force in all economic and international relations that is capable of subordinating to itself and actually does subordinate to itself even states enjoying complete political independence. We shall shortly see examples of this. Naturally, finance capital finds its most convenient and is able to extract the greatest profit from a subordination which involves the loss of the political independence of the subject to countries and peoples. Gee, why would they go out and topple Iran, <laughs> Iraq yep. when they can just, you know, subject it to the IMF? Well, they're not just getting enough out of it. You know, maybe maybe Libya is getting too much out of that national bank that gives people zero percent interest on houses. Maybe maybe they need to topple that, you know, and, and get that dollar back. Um, so, you know, I mean, you see this in real time right now. Oh, yeah. Constantly. Uh, we shall shortly see examples of this. Naturally, finance capital finds out, finds its most convenient and is able to extract the greatest profit from a subordination, which involves the loss of political independence of the subjugated countries and peoples. In this connection, the semi-colonial countries provide a typical example of the middle stage. It is natural that the struggle for these semi-dependent countries should have become particularly bitter during the period of finance capital, when the rest of the world had already been shared out. Uh, and I'm pretty sure there he seems to be very much a Balkan and oh yeah that you know that area yeah 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 it was he's he's he, and he, I think he talks about it more in the next chapter the, yeah. the the concept of Central Europe kind of that lumping together of the the, the Balkanized areas yeah yeah. Uh, Colonial policy and imperialism existed before this late stage of capitalism and even before capitalism. Rome, founded on slavery, pursued a colonial policy and achieved imperialism. But general arguments about imperialism, which ignore or put into the background the fundamental difference of social economic systems, inevitably degenerate into absolutely empty banalities or into grand... Grandiloquent? Grandiloquent? Grandiloquent. There we go. That sounds right. Comparisons like the Greater Rome and Greater Britain. Even the colonial policy of capitalism in its previous stages is essentially different from the colonial policy of finance capital. And so, and, and he's differentiating, like he's saying, even in, so there was colonial policy in the old kingdoms, there was yeah. old empirical Roman policy, there was colonial policy in the old systems which bore out capitalism, there was colonial policy of the old capitalism, which is still very, very, you know, smash and grab, ethnically cleansed, but grab of new territories. And now there's the finance policy. We don't need to grab new territories. We've, we've made, we've made our, our capital, we've, we've developed, we've already sucked off their backs. Uh, oh, oh crap, we're going to have a civil war because our workers are seeing this a little too obviously. Oh, crap, our monopolies can't expand, can't centralize anything more. We we need new markets. We need new subjugation. Okay, let's smash and grab anything that's left more aggressively than ever before. Oh, we're out of stuff. Now we're going to have to start kicking each other over. Which, yes. again, this book is about World War One. Yes. The principal feature of modern capitalism is the dom- denomination of monopolies. No, 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 it's not the gen- Oh, domination. Damn it, I had it right the first time. <laughs> The principal feature of modern capitalism is the domination of monopolist combines of the big capitalists. These monopolies are the most durable when all the sources of raw materials are controlled by one group. Two beers. 
Yeah, and we have seen with what zeal the international capitalist combines exert every effort to make it impossible for their rivals to compete with them. For example, by buying up mineral lands, oil fields, etc. See back to our fun discussion of uh, of J.P. Morgan and uh, what's his fuck Rockefeller. Rockefeller, those yeah, two, big time Rockefeller. Those two, those two giant cunts. <laughs> Colonial possession alone gives complete guarantee of success of monopolies against all the risk of the struggle with competitors, including the risk that the latter will defend themselves by means of a law establishing a state monopoly. The more capitalism develops, the more need for raw materials arises, the more bitter competition becomes, and the more fervishly the hunt for raw materials proceeds all over the world, the more desperate becomes the struggles for the acquisition of colonies. And so now he's going to look at the shielder who's going to be writing about this. And Childers is going to say, it may even be asserted, although it may sound paradoxical to the sum, that in the more or less discernible future, the growth of the urban industrial population is more likely to be hindered by a shortage of raw materials for industry than by a shortage of food. That's And, and that's absolutely happened. Like we, oh, yeah. We've seen that. That's happened. It's happened in real time. It yeah. has happened. That's, that's accurate. Yeah. So we're going to skip the next quote and go down. And, and speaking of Kautsky... The bourgeoisie reformists, and among them particularly the present-day adherents of Kautsky, of course. All right. So Kautsky says, of course, and they try to belittle the importance of the facts that of this kind by arguing that it would be possible to obtain raw materials in the open market without costly and dangerous colonial policies. Oh, you're just you're just doing the war wrong. It's just it's it's just an illegal war. You just you got to do you just shouldn't do the sanctions. You should just bully Venezuela and say Maduro's evil and and you know, he, you shouldn't put all these army bases around Iran. You should just make sure Iran bends to our will some other way. And that it would be possible to greatly increase the supply of raw materials simply by improving agriculture. But these arguments are simply an apology for imperialism, an attempt to embellish it, because they ignore the principal feature of modern capitalism, monopoly. Free markets are becoming more and more a thing of the past. Monopolist syndicates and trusts are restricting them more and more every day. And simply improving agriculture reduces itself to improving the conditions of the masses, of raising wages and reducing profits. Where except in the imagination of the sentimental reformists, are there any trusts capable of interesting themselves in the conditions of the masses (laughs) instead of the conquering of the colonies? And that where, is where are the good billionaires? No, that it's and it's it, we've said it explicitly, and he just puts it in great. Again, we have the means and the resources and the ability to solve for all of these problems. People do not need to be hungry. They do not need to starve. There is no there is no natural resource shortage that is causing this. It is simply oh, sure. purely a lack of will. From those, it would cut into profits. It would cut sure. into capitalism. And, you don't and want for to all do the it. practical solution things that will do their explainer videos and the turnaround and go, oh my God, China's authoritarian or whatever the the shit imperialist fear mongering they want to do. The practical solution stuff is bullshit because it's not a question of can you. No, it's not that people don't know you can. Any any dumbass knows you can. It's it's that the people in charge won't. And the people who support the people in charge, even against their own interests, are ideologically aligned to by damnation of other races, of poor people, of all these forms of bigotry that they've been. 
and you're not going to snap out of it because you came up with the right policy in a little explainer video. When you educate people, you have to educate them about theory. You have to educate them about theory that is correct. You have to educate them about theory that is revolutionary. And we have to have a revolution to upend the people that caused this and put it in the hands of the workers. Get in there. Yeah, and that is, again, if there is ever, I think we've plugged it before and I will plug it into all of eternity, the the video of Fred Hansen explaining yeah. the, the going over someone had brought a party platform to him for, for a, a group. I don't think it was a Panther group, but, a, you know, a similar, similar, you know, revolutionary sure. group. And, and Fred, Fred's first, I mean, immediate thing was, where is your education piece? You don't have an education, you haven't laid out your education piece. And they try and like hand wave it off. There is education. And for, no, 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 no. That's your bedrock. It has to be education. Yeah. And and he says it better than anyone else, I think, ever. I'm not going to try and paraphrase him. No. Go watch that goddamn video. It's so good. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe we'll link it in the episode. I'll, if, if, I'm feeling, if I'm feeling frisky, I'm going to link it in the episode. Yeah, it yeah. is. Would a doubt listen to Fred Hampton. Oh, He's my God. Pretty smart God, guy. That, but that video. But that, yeah, the, the, the real time. What uh, uh, summarized Gotha program out of Fred Hampton's mouth? It was so oh, it was just <laughs> the on layman's the fly. terms Gotha program on, off the cuff in four minutes. In four minutes, like in four minutes, he was able to completely synthesize Fred's- all of that in a way that anybody could have understood. Yeah. Like, goddamn you fuckers for killing Fred Hampton. <laughs> Finance capital is not only interested in the already known sources of raw materials. It is also interested in possible sources of raw materials because present day technical developments is extremely rapid. Oh, they don't have the technology to drill in Venezuela. Mm. It only has the world's biggest oil reserves. Yuck to yuck to year. And because land which is useless today may be made fertile tomorrow, if new methods are applied, to devise these new methods, a big bank can equip a whole expedition of engineers, agriculture, agricultural experts, etc., and large amounts of capital are invested. This also applies to prospecting for minerals, to new methods for working up and utilizing raw materials. Hence, the inevitable striving of finance capital to extend its economic territory and even its territory in general, in the same way that the trust capitalize their property by estimating it at two or three times its value, taking into account its possible future and not present returns. Enron! (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh, and further results of monopoly. So finance capital strives to seize the largest possible amount of land of all kinds and in any place it can and by any means counting on the possibilities of finding raw materials there and fearing to be left behind in the incessant struggle for the last available scraps of unappropriate territory or for the repara- repartition of that which has been already appropriated. And it is it's that and we see it. Um, we've seen it every time. Every time there is some sort of technological revolution, and you, the the whoever silicon, mm-hmm. silicon, yeah, was not a thing that you needed in this at this time. No one was 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 mining for silicon and all that kind. Of, it wasn't a valuable resource. No one cared who owned it. Yeah. Uh now if you're the person that happens to own the main source of stuff, you're you're rich beyond your wildest. It always changed, and so. If you're in finance capital, if you have more money than you know what to do with, your entire job is I'm going to buy as much as I can because you never know I'm when buy the, up those San Francisco, those Bay Area lands. See you what happens. never know when all of this stuff is going to be. We useful. have TV shows about TV shows about that shit. We have fucking Shark Tank. You never know yeah. which one of those bullshit ideas is going to hit. You're just going to make people go on there and beg for a few bucks by throwing you their ideas for free, essentially, <laughs> and you're just going to buy up the copyrights. Yep. 
it's, it's uh, just it's 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 insanity, and it's it's yeah. again, it's just it's how this system. It is the only way this system functions at the end. In late stage capitalism, this is this is what you get. Period. Yeah. Yep. The British capitalists are exerting every effort to develop cotton grown in their own Egyptian colony. In 19, yeah, I know. In 1904, of the 2.3 million hectares of land under the cultivation of 600,000 or more than one-fourth were devoted to cotton growing. The Russians are doing the same in their colony, Turkestan, and they are doing so because this is the way which will be a better position to defeat their foreign competitors – to monopolize the sources of raw materials and form a more economical and profitable textile trust in which all the processes of production will be combined and concentrated in the hands of a single owner. The necessity of exporting capital also serves to stimulate the quest for colonies, for it is easier in the colonial market and sometimes in the only possible way by monopolist methods to eliminate competition, to make sure of orders, to strengthen the necessary connections, etc., you know, I mean, maybe you're bringing these these uh, uh, undeveloped peoples the great, great gift of of technology from the capitalist lands. It's dull. Oh yeah, I mean, so they can take the pineapple. It's dull. It's, it's dull. Just all the way. Dull. it's dull. It's dull. I was, all that's the way exactly down. what was coming to mind. God, it's dull me. all the way down. It's dull. It's pineapples from fucking top to bottom. God damn it. So anyway, the non-economic superstructure, which grows up on the basis of finance capital, its political its uh, and its ideology stimulates the striving for colonial conquest. Finance capital does not want liberty. It wants domination, as Hilferding very truly said. And a French bourgeoisie writer developing and supplementing, as it were, the ideas of Cecil Rhodes, in which we quoted above, writes, the social causes should be added to the economic causes of modern colonial policy. And so I think this is actually a Rhodes quote here. Or was yeah. It? Yep. Which, uh, Owing to the growing complexity and difficulties in life which weigh not only on the masses of workers but also on the middle classes, impatience, irritation, and hatred are accumulating in all the countries of the old civilization and are becoming a menace to the public order. Employment must be found for the energy which is being hurled out of the definite class channel. It must be given an outlet abroad in order to avo- avert an explosion at home. Again, I don't want revolutionary to kick my ass. Oh my God. Let's go topple those guys and suck off their raw materials so that people under me are happy. They're telling you that they're killing people in the global south and dominating people in the global south and ethnically cleansing people in the global south so that you're happily repressed and don't take them out of power. Again, this is where Lenin is so important so that people realize realize the importance of anti-imperialist policies and how it's such a major part. You know, I don't care if Syria is the socialist beacon of the world. I don't want the U.S. fucking colonizing the oil fields and killing people on the way. It's morally wrong, but it's also a way for them to, to dress up my oppression and keep it going. Stop people from radicalizing with me and turning things over. We are Marxist-Leninists. We are against that. And even if you're not a Marx, I mean, and again, I, I, I guess you can justify it, but I, this is – that goes to really showing that the concept of inaction is in and of itself harming. It, it is it is causing harm. Yeah. If you are not actively opposing this system, if you just kind of sit back and go, well, I'm not going to vote for Trump, so I'm on the good team. Yeah. No. You're not because you have to know that the only way your your lifestyle that you are comfortable with is supported 
is through exploitation of the global south. There is no and, other way and to And all do of these it. ruling class people from the companies that, that the government truly serves to the people in the government, they're all supporting this stuff. Yes. You know, the pundits, all of them. You know, and that's not even getting to something that I don't think we should dust out. I think it's really important to debunk the lies because the lies about how terrible Venezuela is and how terrible oh the God. DPRK is and all, you know, anti-socialist thought and pro-imperialist thought ride on those lies. Yes. Debunking those lies is vital. So, But even outside of that, we have the theory here of, of why opposing that stuff is so important. Yes. Why, why it's important to debunk those lies, even if people think you're an asshole, because of what you're fighting when you do it. Yes. So, uh, Lennon says, since we are speaking of colonial policy, the period of capitalist imperialism, it must be observed that finance capital and its corresponding foreign policy, which reduces itself to the struggle of the great powers for the economic and political division of the world, give rise to a number of transitional forms of t- national dependence. The division of the world into two principal groups of colony-owning countries in one hand and colonies in the other. It is not only the typical feature of this period, there's also a variety of forms of dependence, countries which formally are politically independent, <coughs> Excuse me. which are, in fact, enmeshed in the net of financial and diplomatic dependence. We've already referred to one of them, a form of dependence, as a semi-colony. Another example is provided by Argentina. So this is where we're getting into some of these nuts and bolts, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like there aren't explicit colonies. They've smashed and grabbed all the lands of the world. But some of these explicit colonies seem independent, Mm -hmm. seem like their own government. And we've seen them dependent on bank loans. Now we're going to see something a little more commercial, something a little different in Argentina. So uh, South America, and especially Argentina, writes Schultze Gavernitz in his work on British imperialism, is so dependent financially on London that it ought to be described as almost a British commercial colony. Basing himself on the report of the Austro-Hungarian consul at Buenos Aires, Schilder estimates that the amount of British capital invested in Argentina in 1909 at 8.75 billion francs is it, it is not difficult to imagine the solid bonds that are thus created between British financial capital and its faithful friend diplomacy and the Argentine bourgeoisie, the leading businessmen and politicians of that country. So now you're seeing something where you're not just – they're not just subjugated to you formally by, by being your territory from, from a military campaign. Oh, of course not. They're not just subjugated by dependence on a loan that they need to repay and doing what you say to get that loan. But now, because they're dependent on your finance, on the potential loans, you've made agreements, you've made inroads with some of the the business leaders, the people that were wealthy and you made wealthier, the people that you insured were a class above others. And now you've got these ties and these inroads, and that can be important. Maybe they become your resistant group who holds out you know, their flower monopoly, so there's not bread in stores for, you know, your imperialist lies. Maybe maybe they're people that, you know, turn to you later and fight from the inside. Maybe they're people that will later cry about losing their sugar plantations as they run around Florida, you know, pretending like there is no such thing in, as white supremacy in Latin America. But there, there's certainly going to be people that you have on your side. You're creating a subversive bourgeoisie who is ideologically aligned with you anyway. And who feels independent, is glad they're above the other people, is glad to have the power at hand, but is subject to you. You know, there's no such thing naturally as a middle class. There's a ruler and a ruled. But you're making a ruled who turn around and rule other people so that they're on your side. You know, that's that's something that white supremacy does. It's 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 
age-old basis of colonialism. Now you're seeing it in a very financial way from people. So now, you know, you can't just go listen to Venezuelans, listen to, to, to blah people because, you know – You've got Venezuelans who are the oppressor because they're they're making these inroads. They're they're in the IMF bank ties, you know. So uh, nothing is a homogenous block. Nothing is a homogenous block, and now you're taking advantage of uh, people within that homogenous block and creating a class or exacerbating a class under quote unquote business ties for for they need your finance, they need your capital. You're going to make them rich. Yep. A somewhat different form of financial and diplomatic dependence, accompanied by political independence, is presented by Portugal. Portugal is an independent sovereign state. In actual fact, however, for more than 200 years since the War of the Spanish Succession, it has been a British protectorate. The British have protected Portugal and her colonies in order to fortify their own positions in the fight against their rivals, Spain and France. In return, they've received commercial advantages, preferential imports of goods, and above all, of capital into Portugal and of the Portuguese colonies. The right to use ports and islands of Portugal, her telegraph cables, relations of all kind have always existed between the big and small states. But during the period of capitalist imperialism, they become a general system. They form a part of the process of dividing the world. They become a link in the chain of operations of a world finance capital. So now you've got a country whose independence depends on you. And so what you're essentially doing is, is you're giving them an air of independence. They're not they're not crippled and leaning on you financially. But you're basically taking them and, and it's mafia style. You want this protection money. Okay. Now you're part of my vertical integration. <laughs> I think it's like what every like like stereotypical America thinks of uh, of our relationship with Canada. Yeah, yeah, I think <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so probably, probably, yep. yep. Uh, and so that's all I have for chapter six. All right. Well, I would say that's uh, right at, at 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 our solid hour. You're you're back to full length episodes, guys. Hey, you got a couple it. shorties, and now you're back to the good stuff, the unrefined, <laughs> unleaded Lenin. Um, and so next week, and for us in a couple minutes, you're going to hear more in Chapter 7. Until then, bye! bye.